Hi, everyone. How are you today? As we know, it is June, and June is Gay Pride Month. And in response to Gay Pride Month, as a Christian, I have been focusing some episodes on the very subject of LGBTQ, because it's a subject that's near and dear to my heart, because I have seen so many in my close circle of friends and family, including those who name the name of Christ, succumb to the LGBTQ ideologies. And what I have seen follow is heartbreak and confusion and distinct even personality changes in people um, that are not for the better. And I've seen as they as they are accepting these ideologies and participating in the homosexual lifestyle, I am seeing them also embrace other worldly things. And when I say worldly things, I mean things that God hates, one of those being abortion and the notion that there are more than two genders. So once a person goes down that road, unfortunately, it opens them up to so many other things. And I am seeing that firsthand. And I'm also seeing the church retreat in silence um, via the pulpit. Many of the pulpits are silent about this issue. I think a lot of it is because they don't feel equipped to handle it, and partly also because of fear, because of all the... um hostility and attacks that are happening to people who are standing in their faith, standing strong in their convictions and their beliefs and living according to God's word. But either way, our silence speaks of acceptance. And that is one thing we definitely don't want to um, convey as people who say that they believe in God, that they believe in God's word as holy and infallible. I have um, two episodes. This is a part one and part two here. And the episode is based on a post from someone who feels that people who call themselves Christians are God posers when they don't approve of the homosexual lifestyle. Um, And this person grossly twisted and misapplied scripture in order to try to state their case. So I am going to refute that and dig into God's word and see what it really has to say. And I'm going to confirm God's word with God's word. Okay, I'm going to let scripture confirm scripture. And hopefully you will walk away feeling more empowered and more equipped and encouraged to not know just what you believe, but why you believe. So please join me today as I dig into this. If you can, have your Bibles ready. I will have the scriptures posted on my website so that you can go back through and really digest this and and study it. Thank you so very much for joining me today. Hi, and welcome to One Little Candle, a place where God's people can come to be encouraged and inspired to be the light that God calls us to be. And when our flame is burning bright, we can't help but light the flame of others along the way. Don't think that you can make a difference in your little corner of the world? Yes, you can, because all it takes is one little candle. I'm your host, Rebecca Bershwinger. Thanks for joining me for today's episode.
Hello today and welcome back to One Little Candle. Thanks for joining me. Everything around us seems to be focused on um, the LGBTQ lifestyle during the month of June. And actually, it's getting to be pretty much even outside of the month of June. So I figure if the world wants to be talking about it, then the Christian should be talking about it too, right? But of course, we're going to talk about it from a biblical stance. We're going to look at the subject through the lens of Scripture. And honestly, LGBTQ issues are really near and dear to my heart because this past year, I have seen an alarming number of people in my close circle of family and friends succumb to the ideologies, whether they are involved in a same-sex relationship or they are having gender struggles. I'm seeing a lot of heartache. I'm seeing families being torn apart. And just so you know... (laughs) A lot of them are Christian families. They have children who grew up going to church, families who claim the name of Christ, being raised Christian, and yet they are embroiled in the homosexual lifestyle or, again, having gender struggles. Honestly, I'm also seeing some very disturbing personality changes in these young people that have succumbed to these ideologies It seems to be once they move over into that camp, so to speak, they start to embrace all kinds of ungodly ideas, um, including embracing abortion and the ridiculous notion of there being more than two genders and that a man could possibly ever be a woman and vice versa. And I'm seeing them shut themselves off from people that they know would not agree with them. And, and not even, not, it's not even like people are, are having conversations with them about it. They just, they just know. And so they're shutting themselves off and unfortunately just gravitating to only those who, who hold their beliefs. So it's a big thing what, what's going on because it's satanic and it is an affront to God's created image. He is really after, especially this younger generation. They need our help. They need us to stand up and speak truth. They need our prayers. And they need us to love them, of course. So that's why I have been focusing on um, LGBTQ-type topics these past couple of weeks. But anyway, as, as we know, Christians are maligned for their stance on sexual immorality and, and particularly their rightly held beliefs on homosexual activity. Quite some time ago, I read a post from someone claiming to know God, or at least they attended church on occasion. But this person twisted and they misapplied scripture in order to make their case against those who hold to God's word as their ultimate authority. And this person accused those with differing views as haters and God posers. And the author of the post also implied that those who stand against the LGBTQ beliefs are not loving their neighbor as Christ commanded and that the Old Testament was irrelevant. Now, obviously, this is the danger of knowing of, the key word here being of, the danger of knowing of the scriptures, but not actually knowing the scriptures. They know of the Bible and of God's word, but they don't actually know the word. And then what they try to do is to build a theology on that. And of course, it ends up all wrong. 
especially once you compare scripture with scripture, right? Because as we know, scripture always confirms itself. But anyway, this person attempted to use God's word to try and prove their point. And I know that though this is a difficult and highly controversial subject, it's it's one, however, that has managed to slither its way into the church. Again, as I said, many of these young people succumbing to this and embracing these lifestyles and this way of thinking call themselves Christians and their families. They claim the name of Christ. So this subject, because it has managed to slither into its way into the church, it's causing division and many to fall into error. And the, the thinking on how to, <clears throat> how to handle this is just all over the spectrum. I have a very good friend who is a Christian, and her daughter claims to be a Christian, and she is in a same-sex relationship. And she's heard everything from, oh, you need to completely cut her off, have nothing to do with her, to, oh, what's the big deal? Just embrace it. And as long as she's happy, talk about conflicting, right? But nonetheless, God has made himself abundantly clear as to where he stands and where those who claim the name of Christ need to stand. Now, this episode's going to end up being a little long. This is kind of like a Bible study. So in the interest of not overwhelming you, if you got to cut this episode into two parts or three or four parts, whatever, because I want you to really digest everything that you're hearing. I want you to meditate on it. I want you to pray upon it. I want you to study the scriptures for yourself. So it's my prayer that this Bible study is going to help you to be more equipped to stand firm in God's statutes and his desire for you to live a life that's honoring to him. And as well as for you to be able to articulate what God has spoken about sexual immorality, if need be. And of course, may this also be a reminder of our need to love our neighbor just the way that Jesus did. By caring for those who need God's truth, investing in them as those made in God's image, yet, yet, speaking the truth in love and being a living testimony as to the ability to love others while not condoning actions that are spiritually harmful to them. Jude 1, verses 22 and 23 says, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So let's dig into scripture and see what the true God of the Bible has to say about homosexuality. Got your Bible ready? Let's do some exploring. Okay. So I'm going to break it down into some little sections here, and we're going to, of course, kind of apologetic style, lay the foundation here with everything from what the Bible says sin is, what it says about the practice of homosexuality. We're going to talk about love, God's love versus the world's definition of love. We're going to talk on conditional love and loving thy neighbor as thyself. Old Testament versus New Testament. Basically, I'm going to address all the things that this person in their post tried to use in order to back up their their beliefs, their, their accusations against those who have differing views. 
So what does the Bible say about the practice of homosexuality? Now, obviously, this is not about what I think or how I feel or my experiences. This is about what the Bible says and whether or not it's our ultimate authority. Because for me, it's most definitely the ultimate authority. And before I start quoting scripture on the sin of homosexual activity, let me make one thing clear. Because I think we all need to remember this. God forbids all sexual activity outside of marriage, right? It should only be between a husband and a wife, which is one man, one woman. Sexual immorality includes heterosexual sins, such as adultery, fornication, pornography, etc., etc., as well as homosexual sin. And the Bible commands us to give up all sin, right? But for the purpose of addressing the accusations of Christians who speak God's truths about homosexuality, being haters and God posers, we are going to focus on the sin of homosexuality because it's from that standpoint, which you are going to be attacked and maligned in your faith. That kind, the kind of attacks that are happening nowadays and the trampling on of one's religious freedoms and the um, ability to live out their, their conscience, their biblical conscience, isn't coming so much from anything having to do with pornography or um, fornication or adultery, honestly. It's, it's the LGBTQ agenda that is really um, taking and quite twisting the scriptures, grossly misapplying them, and, and of course demonizing those who hold to the truths of God's word. So where in the Bible is homosexual activity clearly condemned? Leviticus chapter 18 verses 6 through 30 teaches the law of morality, okay? And many sexual sins are listed here. And I am using the ESV version, by the way, just so you know. So Leviticus 18 verses 6 through 30. It talks about uh, no one approaching any one of his close relatives to uncover their nakedness, the nakedness of their mother or their father, their father's wife, um, any, any family members, okay, you shall not uncover the nakedness of them. It also says you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife. You shall not offer your children to Moloch. Moloch was a false uh, deity, and they worshipped him with child sacrifice. And there probably was some sort of sexual perversion, I'm sure, going on within the worship of Moloch as well. But it tells them, don't sacrifice your children to Moloch and profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And then it says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And then it goes on to talk about not lying with animals. Because God says that you will make yourself unclean if, if you do any of these things. Again, go through and read the verses thoroughly for yourself. In the interest of time, I am just skimming through it when, it, when it's long like this is here. But we have Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. And that says, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Romans 1, verses 24 through 27. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, 
who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And something important here, Paul reminded them as he talked to the Corinthian church, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In doing this study, let us not forget where we came from, right? And what Jesus did for us. And 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So the Old and New Testaments are perfectly clear. And there's another podcast episode coming up about this, but um, people will try to twist that and say, well, they're talking about rapists and things like that. You know, this doesn't apply to a monogamous loving relationship. That's simply not true. It applies to any of that activity, period. The Bible consistently forbids homosexual activity as well as every form of sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. And anything that we do that God forbids is sin, right? It's sin. So just some food for thought. What does God call to our attention at the beginning and end of Leviticus 18? And why might he stress that? I want you to, when you have the time, if you're in your car or something, you can't do this, but Look at Leviticus 18, pay attention to the beginning and the end, and what God is stressing. And in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 27, what do you think the phrase God gave them over means? Think about that too, right? God gave them over. When God gives us over, he's done with us. That's it. We blew it. He says, have it your way. I'm out of here. <laughs> um, and he lets you do all the things that your evil, wicked heart desires. No restraint. No no holding back. Go, go ahead. Um, that's not where we ever want to find ourselves. We need to not push it with God, right? God has his limits. And again, the wrongdoers spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11 in the Christian, the wrongdoers haven't repented. They're not under the blood of Christ. They haven't accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The Christian, they're forgiven because they've repented. They've turned to Christ. 
But again, we need to remember what we were before then. We were those very things in one way, shape, or form. So as I had said, any form of sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman, the Bible clearly says is a sin. It's breaking God's law, his commands. Why don't we take a look at what sin is? What is sin exactly? Well, the biblical definition of sin is this, any lack of conformity to the moral character of God or the law of God. Romans 14, 23 says, whatever is not of faith is sin. So when we do something that goes against faith or trust in God, that's sin, right? When we know something pleases God, but we fail to do it, that's a sin as well. We have what they call sin of commission and sin of omission, right? 1 John 3, 4, sin is the transgression of the law. When we sin, when we do what God prohibits, when we fail to do what God commands, that is sin. And again, sin is any violation of God's moral character or his law, his decrees. It's also rebellion against God. Sin is rebellion against God. Why? Because it tramples God's character. It mocks God. Mankind, right? By our very nature, we're sinners. We're born into it. And we miss the mark of God's standards every day. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all born sinners, believers as well as unbelievers. And in that, we are all alike, okay? But we do differ when it comes to sin because the believer is one who walks in fellowship with Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, your sins are forgiven. You've repented of your sinful life and your desires, and you've trusted in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God on the cross, right? And you surrendered your life to him as your Lord and Savior. He is your Lord and Savior. And a believer's life will reflect growth. It's going to reflect growth towards holiness, and it's going to be noticeably different from that of an unbeliever. We should be noticeably different from that of the world. If we're blending with the world, we better take a close look at our faith again because we may not be in Christ like we think we are. Because the believer delights in and strives to be obedient to God's commands. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And it also says in verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. We have 2 John chapter 1, verse 6, which says, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. And then I got these out of order. Um, John chapter 14, verses 15 and 21. The Gospel of John. Okay, verse 15 in John chapter 14. If you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. And then verse 21 says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. You see, believers, we sin. We miss the mark from time to time. But we're not ruled by our sin. But the unbeliever continually sins 
And when they sin, they have no remorse or regret for those sins. For them, sinning is just a way of life, right? There's been no change made from their original state. They live their life according to the rule of flesh, which take a look around you, whatever feels good to them. Feelings, 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 nothing more than feelings. There's a song about that. (laughs) Um, That's how they live. And that's why we're such a mess now. The unbeliever may acknowledge the existence of God, okay? But they really don't have any interest in keeping his commands. They may even mock his commands, you know, seeking ways to find fault with those commands and find fault with those who seek to live by them. Again, look at where we are, right? Their way of life for the unbeliever reveals they just don't know Jesus on a personal level. 1 John chapter 2, verse 4. And I had read that one to you. That was coming off of the verse that said, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So the Bible says that the unbeliever has neither seen him nor knows him. First John chapter three, verses six through 10 says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And by the way, that is one of the wonderful scriptures that points to salvation assurance. You will not lose your salvation when you're truly in Christ. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. If God's seed abides in him, he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God, because you've been born again, right? New birth, new life. When you're born again, that's it. You don't go back to being born the old way, okay? That part of you is dead and gone. Doesn't mean you're perfect because haven't reached our sanctification yet, but the old you is gone. We have Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 27. Again, so sorry, out of order in my notes here. I don't know what I was thinking. Keeping you on your toes. (laughs) For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Oof. This passage, actually, it deals with the sin of apostasy, which is an intentional falling away um, or a defection from the faith. Because an apostate is someone who they move toward Christ. They hear the word. They understand the gospel. They're, they're getting it in their head. And they're on the verge of a saving belief. Because remember, we have there's a saving belief, right? But then for some reason, they rebel and they turn away. They may seem like they're into the Christian life and they're, you know, doing this and doing that or whatever, but they never really truly achieved saving belief in their heart and they turn away. And so this warning against apostasy, that's actually one of the most serious warnings in all of scripture. Um, it's pretty scary. And then finally, back to First John again, chapter two, verses three through six. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments 
Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he, Jesus, walked. Amen. Do we do it perfectly? Nope. But there's grief for our sin, right? There's repentance and the desire to go to God and have him help us to please not do it anymore, to to get it right. Okay, so we've covered what the Bible says about homosexuality. We have covered what it says about sin. So I'm hoping by now you've got a, a pretty good grasp on those things. Again, please meditate on these things. Let's talk about love. God's love versus the world's definition of love. Because, hey, we all want to be loved, right? And most of us, we want to love others in return. But the thing is, in order to love like God, we have to first know what God's definition of love is, or we have to know what God's love looks like. Because we can't give what we don't have, right? God loved the world enough to sacrifice his one and only son for sinners. That's you and me and the homosexual. He sacrificed his one and only son for sinners so that whoever believes in him will be able to dwell with him in heaven for all eternity. And of course, we have John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then it says he came not into the world to condemn it, but to save it. So God's love is good. It's perfect. It's sacrificial. But worldly love, well, that's pretty much the opposite. Worldly love is often selfish and self-serving, right? As long as a person's getting what they want from someone, all is good. I love you. You make me feel so good. You make me feel so happy. If they feel that someone's usually meeting their desires and needs, they're going to love them in return. But this worldly kind of love It focuses on getting more than giving, and hence the reason for so many failed relationships, especially marriages, right? But God's love is sacrificial. Jesus, out of his love for us, gave his life for us on a torturous cross. While we were still sinners, he didn't say, hey, Rebecca, get your act together first and then come to me, because he knew that's not going to (laughs) happen. Um. And yet sinners, we were sinners against him. Think about this for a minute. Have you ever thought about the fact that when Jesus went to that cross, he knew all the sins we were going to commit against him full well, but he still did it anyway. There is no greater love than that, right? So much that it makes any kind of love that we feel for one another down here, it might as well be hate. God's love is so much greater. Romans chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Okay, you with me? Romans 5, 7 and 8. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Whew. Thank you, Jesus. God is so good when we're not. So we know the world's love is incredibly fickle. I think we've all been the recipient of a fickle love, and I think we've all also been the offender when it comes to fickle love. 
often people are there for the good times in the relationships, but when the going gets rough, well, they just check out. I'm out of here. I can't take this anymore. Sorry. I don't love you anymore. I thought I did, but I guess I was mistaken. And the thing is, Jesus promises in Hebrews 13, verse 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. God's love is steadfast. It's sure. It's immovable. And little podcast, uh, future episode plug on steadfast love. Let me tell you, I did a word study on it. And when I dug into it, I was blown away because I had some issues. Okay. And those two words really broke the chains of bondage, bondage I didn't even know I was in and set me free. And I have an episode about that coming in. Please join me for that one because I believe it's going to change you right from the very heart. But God's love is steadfast and sure it's immovable. And the thing about God is that he loves us because of who he is, right? He doesn't love us because of what we do or don't do. It's hard to wrap one's brain around, but the saying is true. You can't do anything to make God love you more and you can't do anything to make him love you less, right? He is love. 1 John 4, verses 8 and 16. Bible's getting a good workout today, I hope. 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And then verse 16, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So God is love. Okay. And as I said, it's not because of what we do or don't do. Now, this doesn't mean, though, that we don't have a responsibility to respond to his love, right? Because we do. But it does mean that God is always ready to embrace us in his loving arms when we turn to him in repentance and in faith. Again, a good God. But sadly, the unbelieving world has fabricated its own idea of love. And that idea is getting further and further and further away from the true love that's found only in God, right? Because the world's so-called tolerant love Okay, that tolerant love, which really isn't so tolerant as we know, but that so-called tolerant love takes delight in overlooking all sorts of sinful and destructive behavior. Have you noticed that? And it's all in the name of what it mistakenly believes to be love. The world's false love, it takes openly hostile aim at anyone, you or me, who dares to disagree with another's beliefs or lifestyle. And of course, it misuses the word hate in order to slap false, undeserved labels, again, on opposing beliefs and mostly Christians, right? It attacks businesses and livelihoods and all, again, in an overt attempt to just try and bully those who rightly choose to um, honor God's eternal, unchanging, holy, and righteous degrees. It just tries to bully them into submission to participate in their sin, mostly because it makes them feel better about themselves. Um, that's what happens when you don't have truth in you. You try to force others um, through such bullying to okay what you're doing. But the Apostle Paul really painted a concise picture of true love, God's love. 
and it's of course known as the love chapter, right? First Corinthians chapter 13, verses four through seven, it says, love is patient and kind, right? It doesn't bully, it doesn't force someone into submission. It doesn't envy or boast, okay? Um, what about gay pride month? Pride, right? Pride in our homosexual orientation. We don't boast about being heterosexual. There's nothing to boast about. It's God's created order. Um, so yes, love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. Again, bullying, trying to force people into submission and hurling the most hateful labels they can think of to try to demonize the other other person and justify what we're doing. Um, again, love, it is not irritable. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. There's a lot of that going on lately, isn't there? Rejoicing at wrongdoing. Good is called evil and evil is called good. But it rejoices. True love rejoices with the truth. And the only place we find truth is in God. He not only is God love, right? He's truth. And his word is nothing but truth. Love bears all things, believes all things. And we don't mean believes all things like there's more than two genders, um, stuff that's not reality-based. It believes good things in someone, right? Believes good things. And it bears with others. It bears with others when, when, when we disagree. We don't see things eye to eye, right? We have differences. It, it, it bears with another's weakness. Um, it believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Again, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. So one of the other Bible verses that this person had attempted to use to justify their condemnation of Christians speaking out against homosexuality was love thy neighbor. So I want to talk a little bit about unconditional love and loving thy neighbor as thyself. Love thy neighbor as thyself. You know, th that's not a standalone commandment because before the commandment to love others is the commandment that Jesus quoted actually from the Old Testament. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And that was from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. And now fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus said that this was the first and foremost commandment. All other commandments hinge on this one. Loving the Lord God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind. Loving God and what he loves or hates is to love God. God hates sin. We are to hate sin. Again, mostly the sin in our own lives, okay? That, that first. But sin in ourselves as well as the sin in others that we see is, is leading them down a very dangerous, deadly, painful road. Because as God's word says to us, he hates sin so much that the wages of sin is death. That's Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death. So when we are commanded in Matthew 22, verse 39, to love thy neighbor as thyself, this most certainly includes those with whom we don't agree, including the homosexual. Those within the homosexual community are, in fact, our neighbors. 
It's our fellow man created in the image of God, just like you and I, right? The problem is this scripture gets so often grossly misapplied by those who mistakenly think that in order to perfectly and unconditionally love others, such as loving thy neighbor as thyself, as God commanded, that one must also have to accept, agree with, and embrace any and all behaviors of others, whether they're good or bad. For example, I love my spouse and my children unconditionally, but I don't always agree with them. I don't always agree with what they say or do. And if one of my children were living in opposition to God's laws and decrees, I would love them enough to speak the truth to them. Speak it in love. They may not like it. They may not agree with what I have to say or accept what I've shared with them. And they may in turn actually turn on me and alienate me because of it. But I share God's truth with them anyway. I do it anyway at risk at risk to relationship, at risk to myself. But it certainly in no way means that I hate them because I share an opposing belief with them. They're my children. They're a precious gift. Again, I can't say it enough, created in God's image just as I am. And I would give my life for them and my spouse. Let's take a look at what this so-called unconditional love would look like in a marriage. Say you have a wife who loves her husband and she she loves him in the unconditional way that the world is applying the word unconditional. So this woman who loves her husband would have to wholeheartedly approve of, embrace, and accept an adulterous, physically abusive husband, right? If she is to love him unconditionally, she needs to approve of what he does, no matter whether it's right or wrong good or bad or or harmful to him and or her, you know, it doesn't matter what the husband says or does. She should go along with what she knows to be wrong if she loves him unconditionally. Think about it. What a sham of a marriage that would be, right? Because biblically, that is not God's definition of unconditional love or loving thy neighbor as thyself. Yes, of course, Jesus loved others. He loved, you know, back in that day, the worst of the worst, right? The the prostitutes, the the tax collectors, um, the adulterous woman, sinners. He loved sinners of which we are all. We're all sinners. But he never accepted or approved of their wrong behaviors. Jesus was open and honest and upfront about their sin. And he called for their repentance. He called for them to turn away from their sins, to turn to God, and live holy lives in obedience to his commandments. Let's just look at the Pharisees for a moment here. Did Jesus love or hate them? Because if God loves everyone unconditionally, well, then he must have loved the Pharisees as well, right? In Matthew 23, 15, we read what the kind, loving, meek, and mild who wouldn't blow on hot soup Jesus that the world views him as, has to say to the Pharisees about their behavior. He condemns them as hypocrites, and he refers to them as children of hell. Yes, Jesus was able to love others while condemning their actions. Because let's face it, if they had repented and believed, Jesus would have accepted them into his kingdom, right? With open arms, he would have embraced them. 
He loved them enough to speak the truth to them. And, you know, God also loved the Israelites. He referred to them as his chosen people. He demonstrated his love for them over and over and over, his love and his mercy. But he also exacted judgment on them for their sinful actions over and over and over. But he still loved them. When they repented, he forgave them and he restored them over and over and over. The Bible is rife with examples of God loving people while not condoning their sinful actions. So yes, it is possible to love others while not condoning their actions. As a matter of fact, it's imperative that we love others and not condone their actions. Their actions, again, that are ungodly, that are leading them down the road of destruction. But in order to do that, we have to hold to, you know, to love rightly we, and love our neighbor as ourselves. We have to hold to God's definition of love and not the world's warped, incomplete view of love, which is a love that is, as I've said before, fickle and based solely on emotions and um, self-gratification. Okay, so I think this is a good place to leave off, and we'll continue with part two, where we'll start off with Old Testament versus New Testament here, because the author of the post that this podcast is focused on attempted to basically throw away the importance of the Old Testament when it comes to anything involving God's moral laws, especially those in regard to homosexuality. So we're going to study that and some more very important issues that this person brought up in order to, again, equip you as a believer to be prepared mostly. This is mostly to prepare you to be able to defend the twisting and misapplication of the scriptures, because I am finding more and more believers out there that just don't know how and they become frustrated And so they retreat in silence. And again, our silence is never, never a good thing. So yes, please join me for part two. And again, we will start with the Old Testament versus the New Testament. And until then, thank you so very much for joining me.